Allow me to ruin your Christmas, a novel by Freddy Cruz. Chapter One, Beckett. Mistletoe literally means dung on a twig in German. I hate the word literally, but I tolerate it when Lex Griffin, A.K.A. my favorite podcaster, uses it, mainly because he doesn't overuse it like the chicks I go to school with. Like, I literally asked for almond milk with my venti latte and they used half and half and I'm literally going to get that purple-haired nobody fired, as if... Episode 941 of the Lex Griffin Show blasts through my speakers as I pull into the driveway of my house. Lex and his guest, some Christmas historian, yes, those exist, spill Christmas fact after Christmas fact, but they fall on deaf ears because there's a strange car in the driveway. Where's mom's car? Did she trade it in for this masterpiece? I step out and nearly trip on the extension cord connecting the bazillion yard decorations scattered throughout our yard. Oversized snow globes with snowmen dancing inside, light up reindeer pulling a sleigh. Yeah, mom still goes all out this time of year, even though I'm a 21-year-old grown-ass dude in college. My dad died 12 years ago on Christmas Eve. I suppose it's her way of making sure it always feels special. It works about half the time. The other half I spend mocking jolly old fat guys getting pissed on by spoiled brats and middle-aged dudes getting dragged to the mall to watch their women spin their family into oblivion. This neon green machine, a McLaren P1, makes a ticking noise under the hood. I touch it. Still warm. Is this the surprise mom's been telling me about? Hard work really does pay off. I circle the car and immediately picture myself driving to school in it, driving to the gym in it, driving down Washington Avenue in it, but one glance at the license plate has my plans immediately rendered null and void. The personalized plates read Lex G, as in the Lex Griffin Show, and now I have questions. How does mom know him? Did she arrange for me to meet him because she knows I listen to him all the time? I march up the driveway, thinking of things to say to Lex. I'm at a loss. What could one possibly talk about with someone who's talked to everyone? He interviews athletes, actors, entrepreneurs, comedians, and anyone shunned as beyond the pale for having heterodox opinions. I learned the word heterodox from him. I learn everything from him. He's taught me more about life than my college professors could only dream of teaching. I could talk about what he talks about with complete strangers for hours. And now, he's in our house. Five-foot-high nutcrackers line the pathway leading up to the front door, where a wreath with Santa's butt in the middle hangs. I clear my throat, still pondering what to say to the one and only Lex Griffin. The sun beats down on my already sweaty torso. The Houston heat is the abusive girlfriend I fail to avoid because the miles don't run themselves. My five-digit code unlocks the door to the house and I'm waiting to see if Lex brought his crew with him. To see if maybe I'm his next guest. Perhaps we can talk about forbidden history. Or maybe free expression in sports. The thoughts come to a screeching halt when white, pink, and red rose petals greet me from the floor. I creak the door closed, but it's not like it matters because the damn thing makes a loud beep once opened. And it'll make another one when closed. The rose petals trace along the entryway. Hot liquid bile shoots up my throat, but I force it down. Closing my eyes, I count to ten, trying to figure out my next move. I never had this much trouble sneaking into the house. Nobody said anything yet, so maybe I do have a chance to make a beeline for the door and leave for a few hours. 
maybe go back to school, or to the park to go for a jog. Something, anything to meditate the vision of Lex Griffin and my mom away. Then, a clap fills the air. And another one. I'll say it's a clap and not a slap because, well, this is my mom we're talking about and I don't want to hear anything about my mom and body slapping in the same sentence. Santa Baby, the Madonna version, starts to play and now I know I should leave. But I don't. I can't. This is my house and my favorite podcaster, well, he's not welcome here anymore. I turn the corner of the entryway to see Lex's shirtless back. His arms spread across the counter, defined by his triceps and delts. Dude really does lift four times a week, and with strength like that, I'll have a hard time bouncing him out of the house. His head rocks from side to side. He raises it and says something I wish I could unhear. Mmm, Natasha. Lex continues to growl and mom remains out of my line of sight, so I assume the worst. Not only does my mom get more action than me, but at this moment, I have to hear her getting more action than me. My current sitch leaves me with several options. 1. Swoop in, grab a knife from the rack, plunge it into his neck, get arrested, and go to prison for a long time even though I tried the Castle Doctrine self-defense angle. 2. Go in, channel my inner 40-something-year-old and clear my throat, rendering Lex flaccid. Then, he'd apologize and say it'd never happen again and offer me a co-hosting gig on his podcast. Or, three, turn around and leave. The most rational option. Leave and don't come back for at least a few hours. Possibly days or months. Okay, that's a little melodramatic. But before I can make a decision, my cell phone rings. Nothing like Baby Got Back by Sir Mix-A-Lot to liven up the moment. Except maybe the sound of my cell phone hitting the tile, followed by the sound of a body hitting the kitchen cabinet. What the... Lex mutters. Mom gasps. Beckett? I squeeze my eyes shut and open them, hoping it's not just a painfully awkward dream. Unfortunately, it's not. Who's Beckett? A number one fan, dickhead. Dude's doing God knows what to my mom and he doesn't even know she has a son who also listens to his show. Beckett? The tanned beefcake of a podcaster, this middle-aged mountain of flesh, turns around. He avoids eye contact, shuffles around, patting his hands around the kitchen counter. He shoves a pair of black-rimmed glasses over his eyes. A broken smile spreads across his face. Mom appears at last, rising from behind the kitchen counter, fidgeting with her blouse. Her lipstick circles the top and bottom of her mouth the same way cherry-flavored Kool-Aid does. Lex, this is my son Beckett. His eyes continue to look past me and I swear it's like I'm the dad who's busted his kid engaging in sexual relations. He clears his throat. Beckett, nice to meet you. Chapter 2 Lex The kid gives me one of those looks. The kind that says, I know who you are and I can't believe you're in my house banging my mom. Awkward. Natasha places a manicured hand on my shoulder and nibbles her lower lip. She nibbles it a lot. She nibbled it when we met before we came to her house this afternoon. And now... It distracts me, but not as much as the alpha male energy permeating the house, goading me into a confrontation. A confrontation neither one of us wants. I fumble around the counter for my phone and my car keys. This towering young man stands statue-like in front of us. Mouth slightly parted, he releases a deep sigh and crosses his arms. 
Seems as though he's taken on the role of a bald-crowned middle-aged father about to lecture his daughter and her loser fling about fornicating in his house. At any moment, he'll tell me to leave and stay off his lawn. Only his shirt makes this more awkward. Of all the things he could wear, a Rockets jersey, an Astros jersey, some free shirt he got from a 5K fun run, he wears the last thing I'd expect to see in this situation. A shirt tagged on the chest with G-A-B-4-E. Short for go ahead, blame me for everything, one of the several catchphrases from my podcast. We lock eyes. He squints, then shifts his gaze to Natasha. She ends our three-way stare down with the clap of her hands. Well, the two of you were bound to meet one day. Beckett lifts an eyebrow. He drops his gym bag on the floor and he walks to the couch to take a seat. Pinching each side of the front of his t-shirt, he says... I suppose I get to blame you for ruining my appetite for the foreseeable future. Natasha was right about his snarkiness. Go ahead, I reply. Beckett homes in on Natasha again. One day, he'll make an outstanding angry dad. The rose petals. He pauses, bobbing his head in the direction of the entryway. He continues. Nice touch. Your idea or Romeo's? Now I'm a character in a Shakespearean tragedy. But Natasha and I aren't two young star-crossed lovers. I'm nothing more than a married guy with two daughters and a single woman's home. Chapter 3. Beckett Last time I saw my mother's face this red, she bitched me out over my report card in 11th grade. Got grounded for three weeks and had my car privileges revoked. Stupid calculus. But the crimson shade of her skin at this moment doesn't feign anger. It tells the tale of a forbidden tryst. How do I know it's forbidden? Lex Griffin's wedding band. And my mom ain't married. Hasn't been since dad died. So yeah, Lex stands there, staring at me as if he busted me. And mom? She continues to fumble away with her blouse. Probably gives her something to do until she can figure out how to address the sitch. I kick my feet up on the coffee table. Mom hates it when I do that, but something needs to happen to heighten the tension. Last week's episode really hit home, I say as I tap a finger on my Lex Griffin tee. Mom's eyes widen. She looks away. Lex rests a hand on the countertop. A slight grin cracks through his emotionless face. Is that right? Yeah, especially the part where you talk about history's heroes and villains. Mom slides an arm under his and pulls him toward her, like she's telling me he's only here for her, not me. Her toy, not mine. What time should we meet tomorrow? In a hundred years, we'll look at this decade's good guys and realize they weren't so good and that the bad guys weren't even really that bad after all, he replies without acknowledging Mom. I cross my arms and shrug. That's where you're wrong. Mom tugs at Lex, leaning in to kiss him on the cheek. And she's not even hiding the fact that she's the side dish to his proverbial bucket of chicken. Hey. Lex takes in a whiff of Mom's hair. He closes his eyes. Longer than normal lashes laid down across the bags on his face. This dude yammers about proper sleep at least twice a week and it looks like he could use six months of unadulterated hibernation. But I suppose juggling two women at the same time can leave a guy exhausted so I've heard. Let's connect in the morning. Coffee. Same spot and I'll make sure they get yours right this time. 
He winks the way a cat calling toxically masculine bro with a popped collar would wink at a complete stranger in hopes of getting her attention and into her pants. Creep. Lex rounds the corner of the island in the kitchen and thank God he has pants on because the last thing I need to see is his pecker in the vicinity of my mother. His Hawaiian-themed floral shorts pull up as the lines of his quads flex with each step. Dude obviously never misses leg day. So, he says as he holds my stare, I'd love to know where I'm wrong. Anyone who's listened to this guy long enough knows he loves to be wrong, even when he's 1000% right. The shtick rings hollow right now, but I'll entertain his ego. There are no good guys, I say with air quotes around good guys. Just villains and anti-heroes. Lex nods and it feels great to have someone agree with me on anything in this house. Mom and I can't even agree on dinner most of the time. Mom rolls her eyes. She paces about the kitchen, something she does when irritated. But how can she be irritated by the presence of someone who inspired her to graffiti-tag our home with rose petals? She huffs and her face turns sour. I'm no anti-hero. But you're the villain in someone's story. Oops. I think I said the quiet part out loud. Chapter 4. Lex. Her skin. It always rests perfectly against mine. Softer than the generation who got me fired from my previous employer. I often wonder what it's like to be so weak that words and ideas can shatter a paper echo chamber. She wriggles her body against mine. The silk nightgown slides up, revealing no undergarments as she snakes an arm around my shoulder. Freckles on her arms command their presence as her porcelain skin glistens in the moonlight, shining through our bedroom window. She digs her fingernails into the back of my neck. Hard enough to let me know she's awake. Soft enough to not break skin and bleed me dry. I trace the palm of my hand against her waist. Nuzzling my face into her neck, I take in her scent. Geranium and honey. Intoxicating. Slowly exhaling with my mouth in a tiny circle, I blow soft, hot air into her neck and ear. She coos. The goddess of a woman spooned against me fights the web of sheets to rub her ass on my crotch. She coos again, circling her derriere. A thin, raspy voice whispers, Hey, stud. The entire experience is... unexpected. But my wife wants what she wants. Kinda hard to deliver when I'm half asleep? She spins her body around and plunges her mouth into my neck. Silky strikes of tongue lash my skin, tracing saliva all the way up to my ear. Your teammate down here disagrees. She replies, but I need it, no, want it, to disagree. You're surprisingly worked up at... I pause and crane my neck to look at the blinding white numbers on the alarm clock. Three in the morning? I yank the comforter off her body. She scoffs. The comforter slides off of me. I tug it back. She returns the action and now it's a hostile game of tug of war. What's wrong with you? She growls. My circadian rhythm? My sleep schedule? I bury my head under my pillow. Silence. I remove the pillow from over my head and roll over so she can see me. And my wife being emotionally absent for the past month and a half. And here we go, she growls. Alexa, lights on. 
Great. Now I can really forget about sleep. I never said shit about you being out at your work functions all those years when the girls and I were at home, she says, tipping back a thumb and a pinky finger, the universal hand gesture for drinking booze. And I haven't said anything about you treating me like a predator every time I try to initiate any kind of intimacy. Not fair. Not fair because she knows I'm right. I pull the comforter over my head and finally, she doesn't respond by pulling them back. She bickers and barks about the client she's been working with for the past few months. How, if she lands this one, we can finally build my dream studio. The one I've always wanted. One with all the bells and whistles. I have everything I could need or want for my show and the data proves it. She ignores me and blathers on about landing this client, some home decor place whose founder comes from the publishing industry. The pitter-patter of her feet wanders about the bedroom as she rambles about the possibilities for her PR firm, Mama Bear Marketing. Impossibilities for her business mean endless possibilities for our family. Say something, she scoffs. I have a breakfast meeting in three hours and I need to take the dog to the vet. Good night, Ellis. Who the hell are you meeting that early in the morning? The villain of your story. Potential sponsor for the podcast? Fact check. Lie. Chapter 5. Beckett. I hate that mom turns her location permissions off the Live360 app. But she loves to snoop on me. Why did you take that way home? Why were you at Starbucks so long? Why did you go to Eli's house when you have school from 8 to 11 on Mondays and Wednesdays? She thinks she can pull a fast one on me with that stupid tracker, but she can't out-trick a world-class trickster. Wednesdays are her late nights, which means I have dinner duty. Usually some easy-bake, sodium-heavy, food-coma-inducing pizza. The four beeps come from the door, tell me mom has arrived and that I should probably stay quiet. She enters the living room without looking my way, peeling off her blazer and draping it over the couch, dropping her suitcase next to the side table. I wave a hand in the air to catch her attention, but she turns her back to me. Placing a hand on the back of the couch, she leans down to remove one shoe, then the other. Sorry about what I said. And I am. Sort of. She responds with a long sigh. The kind of sigh that reminds me women love to hold a grudge. The kind of sigh that tells me she'll hold my words against me 20 years from now when I least expect it. Pizza's almost ready. She responds with a yawn, her back still facing me, and the temperature at home has now reached Antarctic levels. How dead was business today? Five years in funeral sales and I still can't refrain from making corny jokes about her career. With her back still facing me, Good Lord, let it go, woman. She says, Sold a six-person hedge estate. Mortgage paid for the next three months. I open the fridge for a couple of bottles of water and place one on the counter. Twisting the cap off and holding mine in the air, I raise a toast. Here's to 12 more weeks with a roof over my head. She finally turns my way. Her nose twitches as she sniffs the air. Pizza again? It's Wednesday. You know the drill. She rolls her eyes and plops herself on the couch. I don't know if I can even stay awake long enough to eat, to be honest with you. The oven beeps its one-minute warning. Sixty seconds till you feast on Totino's finest fare while you feast your eyes on Sunny Corinthos from... I take it you're not going to ask me about Lex? No, I saw more than enough. She scoffs. 
You weren't supposed to see that, Mr. Intro to Psychology 101 on Tuesdays and Thursdays from noon to two. Prof canceled class. I wish he didn't after seeing what I saw. Mom replies by turning the TV on and cranking the volume up all the way. The oven beeps and I grab our dinner from the oven. Reaching a bare hand into the 400-degree oven wouldn't be nearly as painful as yesterday. You want a piece or not? Mom shakes her head. More for me. I need you to believe that I know what I'm doing. Do you really, though? She continues on and on about passion and relationships and desire in a way I've never heard her speak before. Dad left all these years ago and she's never spoken of or even brought another guy home. Until the Lex incident. Her ramblings sound like those of a love-struck Reese Witherspoon in a rom-com. Rubbing her eyes with the heel of her palm, she lets out another yawn. The last thing I expected to see in our home was Lex freaking Griffin, naked in our kitchen, with my mom. So, I pause as I roll the pizza slicer into dinner with a little more force than necessary. Sorry if I don't share your enthusiasm for passion. I inhale half the pizza in a few bites with no regard for my scalded tongue or singed roof of my mouth. Listen, she says. She stops to fish her phone from the pocket of her slacks. She taps her fingers on the phone and smiles. Her toes curl as her feet dance in the air, giddier than the most giddy teenaged girl. When's your next date? She sticks her tongue out at me. Thought you knew everything you wanted to know. The thud of the TV room echoes through the family room as it bounces off the floor. Every time she tells me to believe her about something, I go back to my first Christmas without Dad. You have to believe he's still with us. You have to believe Santa will give him your letter. I think back to the December before Dad died as Mom snores a cute snore. Creeping around the kitchen counter, I tiptoe toward the couch. Her mouth is part open, right for a picture to use as wallpaper on my phone but no time for shenanigans. I have work to do. Leaning in, I whisper, Good night, Mom. And I kiss her on the forehead. She adjusts her tiny frame on the couch, curling her legs in. I don't know how she can sleep in her work clothes, but whatever. Maybe she'll wake up at three in the morning and change. Her hand clutches her phone, which lays on her chest. I hate it when she does that. One of my friend's moms had breast cancer and the oncologist said the tumor was in the same spot where she put her phone in her bra. So right now, I have carte blanche to take it away. Mom, your phone, I whisper. It shouldn't be on your chest like that. She moans and tells me to shut up as she offers her phone to me. I place a throw blanket over her. She tosses and turns. Her hand lays out and I grab it, kissing the back of it. She smiles and whispers. I love you, son. Love you, too. So forgive me for going through your phone to see what the hell you're up to. I press her thumb down on her phone to unlock it. She's admitted to doing the same to me. A text from a few minutes ago reveals that she and Lex are meeting again. Chapter 6. Lex Did you know Santa was born in March of 270? Piper's obsession with the jolly old fart lives 24-7, 3, 6, 5. She asks me to turn off the radio and begins humming the NSA's favorite song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Rudy, our four-year-old rescue, some mix of shepherd with who knows what, tilts his head as she dances. She turns to him. 
Her braids hang just beneath her ears as she tickles his nose with hers. The peaceful moment of the red light ends when the jackhole behind me honks his horn. I show him who's number one and immediately regret it. Mr. Rudy, Santa will leave Daddy a lump of coal if he keeps doing that. Rudy squeals, as if the little putts can understand her Santa obsession or my middle finger. The guy behind me won't get anything from Santa at all because he doesn't know how to wait patiently when the light turns green, I say, winking into the rearview mirror. We pull into the parking lot in front of Rudy's vet. A too-happy-for-eight-in-the-morning tech waves at us as the car switches off. Thank God Ellis let me have her mom wagon. Dog hair is too hard to get out of the McLaren. Give Rudy kisses, I say to Piper. He'll be done before you get home from school. She smiles a toothless seven-year-old smile. Grabbing him by both sides of his face, she kisses his nose and says, No crying, or Santa won't bring you anything this year. The vet tech opens the door and scoops him out. Hello, everyone, she says. Any questions or concerns? I shake my head. Nope, just a routine checkup. Piper raises her hand and waggles her fingers. Please don't make him cry, she pleads. Santa won't bring him any treats or toys if he does. The vet tech makes an over-emotional frowny face with her bottom lip. She taps a hand on her chest and says, I promise to take extra special care of him. The vet tech mouths the words, Oh my God, before escorting our beloved doggo into the office. I hold a hand to my ear. Making a hand phone with my pinky and thumb, I tell her to call me when she's ready. As I put the mom-mobile in reverse and let my foot off the brake, my phone beeps. I hard brake. It's Natasha. Mommy says people who text and drive will never get a visit from Santa, declares Piper, her face emotionless. Daddy has an important meeting about his podcast after he takes you to school. Lie. Mommy says people who text and drive can burn in hell. Piper! I pull the car back into the parking spot and scoop up my phone to read Natasha's message. Can't wait to see you. I peek into the rearview mirror. Piper stares out the window, humming that godforsaken Here Comes Santa Claus song, and if she weren't my daughter, I'd tell her Santa's gonna skip her house if she doesn't stop singing it. As soon as I hit send on the Be There Soon text, Piper clears her throat and says, You can't make me late to school. I drop my phone into the cup holder where it lands in a pool of stained coins and breadcrumbs. Ellis really needs to clean this pigsty. I'll get you there on time, Piper Bear. School's right down the street. Her sky-blue eyes turn into little slits on her perfect face. Good, she huffs, because Santa doesn't like tardies. My phone beeps again. I don't have to look in the rearview mirror to know that Piper's eyes are laser-focused on my every action. The universe knows what I want because the light ahead turns red. Did you know that St. Nicholas was the patron saint of sailors? Did you know that long ago, little boys and girls in Romania had Maz Gerila instead of Santa Claus and they didn't celebrate Christmas? True story. Learned it from my podcast. What's a... Mosh Godila? My phone beeps again. Your phone makes a lot of noise, Daddy. I wrestle it out of the cup holder. Natasha again. Hope you don't mind if I bring a guest. Shit. Santa doesn't like bad words, Daddy. 
I drop my phone into the cup holder. It clinks against the stack of sticky quarters from weeks-old drops of whatever cavity-inducing mocha latte drinks keep Ellis so hyper. Sorry, Piper Bear. Say sorry to Santa. We pull into school. The safety patrol kid with the power complex. This little twerp who could use a bag of coal if he even believes in Santa. I can hear him shouting for me to come on and keep the line moving. You'll definitely grow up to be one of those cops who like to hide in speed traps and stop people for going two miles per hour above the speed limit. Too bad I can't roll over his toes. Good morning, I say to the little tyrant. He growls as he flings the door open. Piper, before she hops out of the car, she leans in over the armrest between the two front seats. Apologize to Santa. For what? She crinkles her face. For saying that bad word. The safety patrol Nazi taps on the window. I oblige. Sorry, Santa. Piper kisses me on the cheek. Good, because he sees everything. If he did, I'd be getting something worse than coal in my stocking. Chapter 7 Beckett Mom never wants to go for coffee. She's a no-frills, give-me-whatever-you-got-even-if-it's-from-a-crusty-gas-station type of girl. So imagine my surprise when precisely 97 minutes after pulling the sheets off my peacefully sleeping body, we end up in one of H-Town's most hipster coffee joints, Siphon Coffee. An oversized pickup truck, totally out of place given the clientele, and the perpetually overcrowded parking lot idles in front of us, waiting for some guy in his smart car to pull out so they can pull in. Mom seethes. She obviously needs a hit, or five of caffeine. Could this guy move any slower? I could use a few hits of caffeine as well. Why are we here again? Thought it'd be nice for us to have a great cup of coffee and do some shopping, she replies with a hand on the horn, ready to lay it on the jackass holding up the flow of traffic. But, I pause. You have to work today. Boss is making me take the rest of my vacation time. She turns to me and winks. And you don't have class until one o'clock. The truck in front of us honks their horn, scaring the crap out of the eco-friendly idiot in his pillbox-sized car. Mom and I chuckle. The guy finally leaves as the truck revs its engine, blowing smoke out the rear muffler and into some poor passerby's face. God bless Texas. Rude, Mom quips. He probably deserved it, but back to this. Mom swerves into the spot next to the truck with wheels taller than most of the beta males that frequent coffee shops on this part of town. A hard break jostles my head back into the headrest. She offers me a stink face instead of a trip to urgent care to check for a possible concussion. Suck it up. We've got shopping to do, but not before we meet up with someone special. She examines her reflection in the rearview mirror as she runs a pinky across her teeth. Says the past few years have been rough. Tell me about it. She slaps my knee and summons me to get out and go inside. As we approach the door to siphon coffee, she tugs at my arm. Says she wants this Christmas to feel like Christmas. That finally, even though I'm grown, we can make this year extra special. In the West Alabama part of Houston, when you hold the door open for the person you're with, everyone assumes you're also holding the door open for them. And forget about eye contact and a thank you. Some blonde in a rice you hoodie zips in front of me and mom. Go ahead, I say. 
We like it when spoiled trust fund babies cut in line. Mom rams her elbow into my side. Son. Mom. Some lady waiting for her drink chuckles at our exchange and flashes me a smile. At least someone around here gets it. The Rice U debutante pays the cashier. Struggling with her purse, her backpack, and her muffin, she drops a book. Mom does the mom thing and scoops it up. The invention of sound, I say, holding up three fingers, the universal sign for A-OK that she'd probably interpret as a white power sign even though I'm half brown. One of Chuck Palahniuk's best. She thanks my mom and says it belongs to her boyfriend. The way she says boyfriend, with a smirk, tells me she thinks I'm hitting on her. The mohawked barista saves us from the awkward exchange. Her eyes droop down in the gray bags underneath, says she's tired of everyone's shit. What are you having? Mom asks as she pounds her thumbs on her phone. Coffee and a blueberry muffin. Mom scans the counter. Three tacos, two with bacon and one with only potato and egg. No cheese. She hates bacon and has never had three tacos, let alone two. Anything else? Barks the barista. Two vanilla lattes, medium. I already ordered. I know. Mom slips the barista a $50 bill, tells her to keep the change. She looks past me and I haven't seen a smile like that since... I can't remember. There you are. You who? I turn around and a blinding white smile robs me of my vision. Him. Mom brushes past me and hugs Lex in a way I've never seen her hug anyone. He returns the embrace, eyes closed. A dimple appears and they kiss. His eyes open as they continue to hold each other. Our eyes lock and his smile fades away. It's not unpleasant, but not friendly either. Stoic. So, this is our company, he says. I couldn't resist, Mom replies. All he does is talk about your podcast. He nods and kisses her on the forehead. A soft, genuine kiss. The way a husband would kiss his wife of 20 years. I assure them both that I can talk about more than his podcast. The encounter seems like an audition for the role of Lex Griffin's stepson. We move to a table. He apologizes for arriving late. Had to take his dog to the vet. Got her to school. You know the drill, he says. Ellis just takes off without saying anything and I get stuck with the chores. So being a dad is a chore. Noted. Well, at least you're still here, Mom says, placing a hand on his. Lex bobs his head in my direction. Hey, Beckett, did you know Santa was born in March of 270? I scan the perimeter to make sure no kids are around. Santa died 12 years ago. He perks his head up. Mom smacks my knee, cranes her head to check for kids as well, and says, Come on, B. Lex grins, and suddenly the grin looks... familiar. Not from the hours of podcasts I've watched on YouTube, or short videos on Instagram. It's like something from a long time ago. He looks over his shoulders, turns back to us, and leans in. I've heard of Santa not being real, but... dead? Santa... Not real. Those words from his mouth. Guys, Mom scolds. Behave while I go get our drinks. She gets up and traces a finger along his tattooed arms as she walks away. He asks about my semester. Fine. 
and my major, don't know yet, who I'd like to hear on his next podcast. I pause and slouch back in my chair. You're asking me who I think you should have on your podcast? Mom slides between us, placing our drinks and food on the table. It's high time you had a romance author, she suggests. He snickers. I stay quiet, refusing to give in to this uncomfortable meeting. Or someone from General Hospital. Mom, really? Believe it or not, these aren't the most ridiculous guest requests I've received. Lex replies, sipping his drink. He blows into the top and continues. Try listening to a seven-year-old ask you to have Santa on at least five times a week. That word again. Santa. Lex used to live in Minneapolis, too, Mom says, changing the subject. Thank God we're not in the tundra anymore, he says. They talk as if they moved down here together. It's got to be seven degrees up there, and here you two are with short sleeves and shorts, she says. He raises his mug as a toast, and she returns the gesture. They talk about snow up north and how it's worth the frigid temps, about the wintertainment parade and cocoa and how it tastes better when snowflakes trickle down from the sky. And Santa. He sips his drink. Santa just seems more... real. Santa. Real. Those words again, from his mouth. Where have I heard his voice before? I excuse myself from the table. They ignore me, holding each other's gaze. They are a couple in a cheesy movie, except Mom's the mistress and Lex's wife is nowhere to be found. I slip into the restroom and wrestle my phone out of my jeans. I tell Siri to find me Lex Griffin in Minneapolis. She fetches me my answer. An answer I don't want, but definitely need. That voice. His voice. That grin. His. All of it. Familiar. The first link that Siri retrieves sends me back to 2010. Headline. Twin Cities Radio Personality Earns Ire of Parents. I tap the link. Lex, then known as Griff, accepted a Christmas dare. He went to Mall of America with a megaphone in hand and declared Santa Claus as not real. That year, 2010, the same year my father died. Mom said he died in an accident. I don't believe her. Chapter 8 Lex Natasha dances her fingers up my arm and slides the back of her hand down until she reaches my hand. Circling a forefinger on the center of my palm, she says, They're uncharacteristically soft for someone who clocks in so many hours at the gym. I love that she notices things like that. Ellis doesn't. Not anymore, at least. Not like when we dated in college and she used to tease me about the tiniest things. A stray eyebrow out of line. A crooked fingernail. Today, I could walk into the house with more tattoos on my face than Post Malone, and she wouldn't notice until one of the girls said something. I suppose that's why I'm here, with Natasha. To fill a void. Itch a scratch. To feel wanted. Natasha removes her hand and scoots to the back of the chair, adjusting her posture the way a small child would do in third grade when the teacher walks by their desk. Her lips widen to a grin as her eyes look past me. Everything come out okay? 
perfect, growls the voice behind me. Beckett's. A hand clamps down on my shoulder as I sip from my mug. The hand pat jerks me forward. My upper lip and nose dip into the mug. The hot brew scalds my face and it feels as though I'll look like Anakin from the only good Star Wars sequel. Oh, my bad, says Beckett. Didn't see you had your mug in your mug. Natasha swoops her hands onto the table for some napkins and starts to wipe my face. Ellis would have let me burn to death. You okay? Beckett plops himself down in the chair next to mine. He examines me and lifts his mug to his face. The way you groaned, he says as he sips his brew. He licks his lip and continues. I thought we were going to have to call 911. I'm okay, I reply. Maybe this is the universe's way of reminding me how awful it is to have lied to my wife about this morning's important meeting with a potential sponsor. Natasha gives my nose a gentle thump and returns to her seat. She makes a show of it, taking longer than just a few seconds to get there, bending over when she doesn't have to bend over. I think she forgot her son's here. She swivels her head back and smiles a smile that I haven't seen from a woman in years, a smile of desire, thirst, hunger, for me. Her curves tease me. After her show, she slouches back into her chair and reaches for her mug. Great coffee, but the chairs could be a little more comfy. I think they're just fine, Beckett chirps, looking at me and not his mom. His eyes don't blink. His body doesn't move. Just his arm, robot-like, raising it to his face for a sip of his coffee. My phone buzzes and I ignore it. So, Lex, says Beckett. He still hasn't blinked, and now he looks like a sociopath, or a psychopath, or both. What was your favorite thing about Minnesota? Ah, summer's by the lake. Natasha sighs a happy sigh and rests her hand on her chin. We loved summers by the lake, didn't we, B? She leans forward to place her mug on the table. Her eyes glance toward the ceiling. Beckett hates this story, she declares as she gives him a wink. He still hasn't blinked, and it wouldn't surprise me if he hates everything, including me. Then finally, he shuts his eyes and lets out a long breath. My phone buzzes again, and I ignore it again. Let me guess, sneers Beckett as his face reddens. The one time when Grandma and Grandpa came to visit us the summer after Dad died and we went to Lake Minnetonka and a goose dropped a huge turd on the back of my hand as I lifted it up to my mouth to lick my ice cream and Grandpa told me not to worry because flying creatures pooping on humans is good luck. This kid's feisty and angry about something. Natasha raises her mug to salute his mini outburst. See? Such an epic story, he says dryly. My phone buzzes again, and this time, I don't ignore it. Pulling it from my pocket, I see three missed calls and three messages from Ellis. You need to go home and be with Piper. She punched a boy in the face because he told her Santa's not real. I'm in this meeting all day and had to get Avery to cut class to pick her up. Please don't ignore this text because she's up my ass about not missing Polly's side today. Everything okay? Asks Natasha, and I wish I could stay here and avoid the inevitable meltdown. I take one last swig of my drink. Parental duty calls. Beckett has started with the no-blinking deal again, 
Put an orange jumpsuit on him and you have someone who fits the profile of a criminal on a Netflix true crime documentary. His lip curls. Then he smiles. Natasha's eyes and shoulders droop in disappointed harmony. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, my Santa fangirl didn't take too kindly to some kid telling her he's not real. She punched him in the face and the school sent her home. Hate it when that happens, says Beckett. Natasha starts to get up as I stand, but I wave her down and plant a kiss on her cheek. She rears her head back and offers me her mouth. I accept. Let's meet again, she whispers. Yeah, sooner rather than later. Beckett clears his throat. He says, and preferably without me. I second that motion. Chapter 9. Beckett Watching Mom watch Lex leave without even turning back for one last wave strikes me in the chest with a special kind of rage. Her face is that of a high school chick whose boyfriend told her he'd rather sit with his bros at lunch. He's long gone, but she still gazes out the window, as if he'll come back. Spoiler alert, he won't. I continue to count the seconds before she turns to acknowledge my existence. One second, two seconds, three seconds, four... I give up and turn my focus to Polinick Chick to see if she decided to pick up my favorite book and give it the attention it deserves. Her face is buried in it, as it should be. At least something is right in the world. Hey, Mom snaps. Yeah? Your face, she replies. It's red. As if somebody punched a litter of puppies in front of you. I shift my gaze toward her, trying to resist telling her what I learned in the bathroom, even though I should. And? What's on your mind? Five words Dad used to always tell me. Don't break your mother's heart. That, and the fact that the reason he's no longer with us has seeped itself further into my life and I must eradicate it from our lives. Nothing. She pats my knee and narrows her eyes. I'm a terrible liar. You haven't been the same since you came back from the restroom. Indigestion, I say with a hand on my stomach and my bottom lip stretched outward. Liar. Guilty. I look back at Polinick, chick. A little luck and I can make her my Mitzi Ives. My fantasy is her woman's intuition that somebody's watching. Her eyes rise over the book. She lowers it. I offer a grin of approval. The corner of her mouth snarls. Yet another reminder of my terrible luck with women in all aspects of my life. One woman at a time, cowboy, says mom as she glares at the object of my desire. Lex's wife would agree. I said the quiet part out loud. Uncalled for, she scoffs, and I'd rather Polinick chick douse me with HTX's finest brew than listen to mom yammer about her precious Lex. What happens next time parental duty calls, mom? Or, God forbid, spousal duty, since, you know, he has a... spouse? Another blank stare. You deserve so much more than to be someone else's side piece. Don't call me that. Well, don't make yourself one, I say, and since when am I the adult in the family? She tells me I don't understand and never will. Nobody has ever made her feel more wanted, more needed, more... loved. But... He's married. Mom gushes about the night they met. 
the way his eyes homed in on her in a way no one else's eyes have ever looked at her. I take a swig of coffee. Now it's room temperature. She takes a swig of hers, too. I turn to Polinic Chick, and she glares at me. You deserve more, I say, and she does. In less than five years, Mom went from helpless widow who lost her husband to a random act of violence two weeks before Christmas to top saleswoman in H-Town, a revenue-generating, customer-pleasing, five-star account executive. She could charm the cheapest cheapskate into dropping six figures in less than five minutes. She reaches for my hand. I don't extend mine. Sliding her palm along the top of my hand, she smiles a broken smile. A smile that suggests she knows I'm right but refuses to accept that fact. I'm a big girl and I can take care of myself. Then why did you need a wingman this morning? She peers out of the coffee shop. The hustle and bustle of the foot traffic fills the void between our silence. Mom? Nothing. Now I'm getting that someone's watching me vibe, and sure enough, it's Polinic Chick. I give her a wink and a three-finger salute, but things are not A-OK. The two of you need to get acquainted, she says. Meaning? She repeats herself. Mom making me her wingman this morning has me in such a foul mood, I walk straight up to Polinic Chick and tell her the ending to the invention of sound. Chapter 10 Lex. My oldest daughter, Avery, sits next to Piper on the front porch. Her arm scoops her little sister's body inward. Piper's cheeks glow with pinkness. Tears glisten as I approach the house. Avery kisses the top of her sister's forehead. I lower myself to do the same, but she shakes her head. The gesture shoots pangs of guilt up my spine as I remember she cut class to fetch Piper from school. Avery rails into me about my numerous absences. Between Piper's weeping and sobbing, my college freshman chastises me about my schedule and her mother's. We're never around. We never eat dinner together anymore. And when we do, our faces can't peel themselves away from our devices. She says Piper needs parents, not another tablet or PlayStation. Not another American Girl doll or Barbie set. Her parents. Well... Avery shouts. Piper continues sobbing. She blows her nose into the sleeve of her Santa hoodie. I ignore Avery and sit down on the stair below them. Piper plunges her head into Avery's lap. Avery embraces her baby sister. Despite the circumstances, it makes me glad she has stepped up in such a way that the two can be so close. Dare I say, Avery has turned motherly. Calm down, little Piper Bear mutters Avery as she places her puckered lips down on her head for a series of soft pecks. I pinch at Piper's little fingers, painted with neon green and red, chipped at the ends. So, want to tell me what happened? That bully Stanley told me you're Santa and that only a spoiled little baby would believe a fat old fart could slide down a billion chimneys around the world. Avery glowers at me. I turn and nod. Mouthing the words, go back to school. I got this. She gets up off the top stair and I take her spot. Piper nestles herself into my arms. Then what? I told him St. Nicholas is real and that he's the patron saint of bakers, sailors, and Russians, she says. Oh my. Remorse for a radio stunt gone awry in 2010 caused me to turn over a new leaf. 
made me promise to never break the pact of the holiday season. I screwed up, and that's putting it lightly. To say I ruined Christmas for hundreds of Minnesota families would be a gross understatement. My stunt took the magic of the season, strapped it to a Patriot missile, and launched it to the North Pole, shattering the Yuletide fantasies of snot-nosed little boogers everywhere. The ensuing days taught me the importance of reading the room, watching my words, and understanding the fallout of what I thought was a hilarious comedy bit. The death threats from angry parents, the clogged voicemail box, and crashed website server from angry emails tattooed the lesson into my psyche. And worse, a man was killed that night while trying to leave the mall. Natasha's husband. The media had a field day with the story and local pundits argued for weeks about whether or not the stunt had any direct relation to what happened to him. After all, he was the victim of a road rage incident in the Mall of America parking lot, hundreds of yards away from the Santa chaos. When it was all said and done, authorities found no reason to press charges on me and my cohorts. We got off scot-free. From the day Avery was born... I made it my mission to ensure I'd never ruin their Christmas. But her little sister ruined another kid's Christmas. What's that saying about apples falling from trees? And then I punched him, says Piper, jabbing the air with a clenched fist. You know that's not right, Piper Bear. My comment goes unheard as she jabs the air again. Then I told him he's the patron saint of all the children except for him. I bite my tongue to hold in a laugh. These things are true, but you can't just go around punching people who say things you don't like. She wails and darts herself up, running into the house. My phone chimes. I should follow Piper into the house to finish dad-splaining the rules of social etiquette. I should go into the house to comfort the little rugrat who did what I would have done if I were in her situation. I should follow Avery into the house to thank her for stepping in to help her parents. Again, I should want the sender of the message to be Ellis, but I stay on the porch. With my hand on the bump of my jeans, I wait. And I wish for the one thing I shouldn't wish for, Natasha's name on the notification. I dig my hand into my pocket. My eyes close and I offer up a request to the wireless gods to send me a message from the woman who has occupied my mind for as long as I can remember. I slip my phone out and press my thumb on the button to unlock it and yes, yes, it's her. In a navy blue pinstripe blazer, unbuttoned with only a lacy white bra separating me from her perfect... Hey. Shit. I press the home button and hope to God Avery didn't see what I just saw. Yeah? Mom told me she's going to be home late tonight. Shocker. After nine o'clock late? A long sigh trails off as Avery trudges toward her car. She stops and sets her backpack on the hood. Turning around, she approaches and, as nice as it'd be to get an even more revealing pic of Natasha, I need her to hold off until Avery leaves. Avery tells me to figure it out on my own and I tell her I will. Then she mumbles something about Piper, but I don't hear it because my phone chimes again. Avery hops in her car and screeches her tires and she drives away because she's hyper-emotional like her father. But that doesn't matter because Natasha sends me another message. I need you. Now. I need you too, I whisper. A tap on my shoulder interrupts the moment. Daddy, who do you need?